0: the global recon podcast here are your hosts john from
1: global recon and mike from fieldcraft llc giving you the matter of facts globalrecon.net fieldcraftsurvival.com i'm your host john hendricks i'm on with mike glover who is the show's co-host we have an interesting episode for you guys today and we're going to have our guest on in a second I'm going to hand it over to Mike, as Mike served with our guest for a number of years in Special Forces. So, Mike, I'll hand it over to you.
0: Hey, guys. It's Mike from Philcraft. Um, I'm happy to have a good friend of mine who I grew up in SF with. Hell, as as, as long as I can remember being in SF, um, this guy's been a part of uh, my Special Forces life and career. Um, Travis is an 18 Delta uh, with a broad spectrum of special operations experience, not only is he a experienced operator and pretty much done everything you could do in special forces, um, but he was also the lead medic who treated Marcus Luttrell during the lone survivor situation. Um, before we go into much detail about that, um, I just want to highlight some of Travis's accomplishments and talk about his Special operations career since he's he's just getting out of the military to maybe give you guys at home some some pointers or some some highlights on his experiences um maybe leading into yours Travis, you on the uh line?
2: yeah, I am brother. what's up?
0: Hey, bro. It's good to have you online man and uh a lot of people know about uh our relationship together, but uh you know just recapping me and Travis grew up on the same special forces company. Um, in 2004, 2005 time period, where uh, Travis was on a scuba team and I had help, was part of standing up uh, a mountain team at the time in Third Special Forces Group. Um, Travis, let's let's start off at the beginning, man, because a lot of people, you know, don't know how, you know, or, or experiences may vary in how, how people go into special forces. Um, tell me a little bit about leading up to you trying out for special forces what you were in the military and then how how what led you down the road to become a uh, green beret
2: absolutely man that's a it's a long story it goes back from when i was a little kid i was that kid out playing in the woods running around you know you know playing army with my buddies and and out hunting as much as i could there in oklahoma um i grew up in the woods and then i saw a movie with John Wayne called the green berets and probably before I was even a teenager told my parents that that's what I was going to do when I grew up. Um, and then pretty much everything after that was me trying to get there. Um, talked to a guy who had been a green beret for a while. He said the best bet was for me to go to the 75th Ranger regiment and learn how to be a soldier first. And that's exactly what I did. Uh, joined the army in 95, uh, Went to Airborne School, went to RIP, which is the indoctrination program for the Rangers. Passed there and then was assigned to uh, 3rd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment. Uh, did my time there. Uh, then went to Selection. Uh, after Selection, ended up uh, graduating the 18 Delta course and went got to a team in 2003.
0: Awesome. So, so being an 11 Bravo and uh, 75th, gave you a good background and a good, I that's kind of the recommendation that I've been given to guys who've been direct messaging me and, and emailing me is, Hey, you, you want to be a soldier gets experience first before you become a green beret. Do you think that's to an added benefit where you prepared more than if you just came off the streets and went in SF because of your experience in regiment?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's so much other stuff you have to worry about being a green beret. Um, you got to think it's a twelve-man element, so you're doing job on top of job on top of job, and having the ability to know how to fight and fight and know how to fight being part of one of the best small unit infantry units in the world is it takes a whole load off your shoulders. So you got the fight down. So when you have all these other jobs and positions and responsibilities, you can put attention on those, knowing that you already have the part that's going to save your life the most down to a science. Um, even going through the Q course, uh, it made things easier because different portions, the instructors would even have me teach or teach the other guys that didn't have that experience and bring them up to speed on, or try to bring them up to speed on the experiences and the training that I had already received from being in the regiment.
0: Yeah, it's really great advice. And and, and again, you know, to highlight what Travis is saying is it, you know, just coming off the street is a technique, but Getting that experience in Ranger Regiment, like Travis did, is is key because you're learning all the skill sets that it takes, which is one component of being a, a special forces soldier. That's real good advice. When you know, when I think about special forces operators that I grew up in SF, um, Travis is one of those guys who's kind of been there, done that, in almost every arena that I could think of. And uh, Travis, can you can you highlight for us? the different positions because <laughs> I know you've done dogs, I know you've done the SIF, I know you've done you know the scuba, you've done the the T thing. Can you just give us a a a snapshot of all the duty positions that you've done through your special forces career?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So if we want to start off Ranger Regiment, I was on a weapon squad. So I was a gunner for weapon squads. So I was a 240 gunner and then I went from there. They started up a new section with the snipers. So I moved over to the sniper section from there. Then when I moved to SF, um, I went to the scuba team, like you said, uh, spent a year there. Uh, there was another team that was the mobility team that didn't have any medics, and the scuba team had two. So I moved over to the mobility team. Uh, in the mobility team is basically their specialty is how to get in and out of any place to in any way to include feet, trucks, Four-wheelers, motorcycles, horses, you name it. I uh, was the medic there. Um, from there, I moved over to the SIF, which is the Hodges Rescue DA force, for special forces. Um, when I was in the SIF, I was an assaulter uh, for the assault side of the house. Then after a couple years there, I moved over to the recce side, and I was a sniper and reconnaissance guy over there for a couple years. Um, at that point, they started a new program up in group that I was interested in, which was the canines. Um, we'd been using dogs from another element for quite a while, and had actually tried. I had actually tried to stand up my own dog program within the SIF to go get a couple dogs because they were such a force multiplier and benefit. I
0: remember um, that.
2: <laughs> yeah, they 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 told me not to. They said stop, desist, and <laughs> cease because there's an entire program coming. Uh, when that program actually stood up, I volunteered to go over there. Uh, me and another guy, AJ, uh, went over there and then I was a dog handler for quite a few years, which was an awesome, awesome position to hold over there. Um, and then from there, after quite a few trips and quite a number of years, uh, moved over to, uh, sock and was doing a research and development job where we were testing and evaluating new equipment and technology for army special operations command.
0: Wow. So that's a, uh, that's quite an impressive career. And I, you know, I always tell guys there's, there's kind of two kinds of soldiers. There's, you know, those guys who are operational and who want to be in the fight. And there's guys who never want to be in the fight. And they're always, they're, war, we call them war dodgers. You know, they're always dodging something. And, uh, they, they typically have a lot of staff time, but Travis was definitely one of those operational guys. Um, thinking about your Special Forces career, um, is there anything in your SF career that stands out to you, uh, as, You know, e- either operationally or, or personally, um, through all the, the rotations that you've done, the combat rotations that you've done?
2: All of it. I mean, every bit of it stands out. This was, like I said earlier, this was something I wanted to do from when I was a kid. So it was something I dreamed about. Everybody has that dream job that they want. Sometimes people make it, sometimes they don't, but I got to do my dream job for the last 13 years. And so every bit of it stands out. Every trip, every guy I knew, every guy I lost, every friend I lost, every mission we went on. I try to remember every one of them and, and to never forget it. You know, now that this thing's coming to an end, it's, you know, the best word is like, man, it's it's one hell of a ride.
0: I remember when we were in Bagram in 2005 and me and you, and I think it might've been Eli, we were drawn out fun. And, and, uh, you know, this is, you know, this is three SF guys in Bagram, which is this big base. And there's a whole bunch of, you know, Sergeant majors running around in uniforms and spit shined everything. And me, you and Eli were sitting in, I think we were like in Ranger panties and like t-shirts and, And uh, we were drawing op fund, and I remember I was just like cherry staff sergeant, new new to SF, and um, I looked at you guys. You know, I looked up to you guys because both of you guys had uh, former deployments with in combat with our group, and I remember us talking, and we were kind of BSing, and we were drawing hundreds of thousands of dollars, and you guys had backpacks to put it in, and I remember had a garbage bag. And then that was the only bag that I had, so I put like I put like a (laughs) hundred grand in cash in a garbage bag, and was like walking down the road in Bagram, you know. And then you guys were clowning me and making fun of me, but that stands out to me as a as a as a time that you know those those small little moments of 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 laughter and you know of getting our war on downrange, it it all all stands out to me, man. And like you said, it's you you share all those experiences and. And for you to highlight to say that you know the whole the whole entire story itself is is the experience is pretty cool, man. How many combat rotations did you get, Trav, out, out of the uh, out of your military career?
2: So I've got nine uh, six to eight monthers, and then I've got two on top of that that were about a month or two long.
0: That's that's impressive. So, like you know, like I was telling listeners before, I mean you got to think about that and think about uh the time and the, the level of commitment that you're going to commit to this this uh job which is special operations which is more more of a life um what about personally man how did you cope with uh that personally and was there was there counterbalances i mean were you able to get through it unscathed i mean personally uh what kind of uh effect did it have on your, your personal life?
2: It's rough. It's hard, especially when you start thinking that there for a while when things were going hot and heavy and the op tempo was really high, um, that I had more time deployed than I had in my new house. And so my house was a vacation home to me and it it cost me, it cost me a wife, um, just because she couldn't live with the me being gone that long. And I wouldn't, I don't blame her. Um, and then it's, it's one of those things. And that's why, you know, it's a brotherhood and you, you come together. Cause we all share the same things. And so you start coming together and hanging out with each other because you understand.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, like you said, it, it you can't gain something without the sacrifice and, and a lot of guys lose a lot of things. And, and, uh, Man, I, thanks for your service leading up to this point, man. I, you know, you've you've done a lot for our country, and I appreciate it. Um, leading into, same our, thing our said, our conversation. I appreciate that, man. I appreciate that. I'm 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 doing my best. You will experience the transition phase here. I, I'm here for you, bro. <laughs> it's not easy, but but uh. It's
2: making me a little nervous. Well
0: no, <laughs> nah, you're good. You're you're good. That's what you got me on speed dial for. Um, so. <laughs> yeah and leading into the interview with John and Travis um just to lay out the narrative uh, we were you know a, a company in third special forces group that was in the northeast region of the country when the lone survivor incident went down in the summer of uh, 2005 um Travis's team was south I was the furthest nor- northern team and I remember this uh vividly it went down and you know basically all special forces or special operations elements in the region were notified but um, Travis's story is a little different. I mean, Travis is literally the first medic that uh, treated Marcus the Trail and has a unique story and unique uh, perspective on the entire take. Um, and we'll, we'll go into that right now.
1: Hey, guys, I'm here with Travis. Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, so Travis, uh, he's going to tell his part of the story of the operation to rescue Marcus Lesnar because he was involved in that. And there were a lot of pieces, but th- this is his uh, part of the story. So Travis, what happened or what were you doing at the time in Afghanistan when you got the call that that you guys needed to ready up and, and go out?
2: Yeah, so we'd been out on a like four or five day patrol through a bunch of the provinces that we had because we were based out of uh, Jalalabad before... Uh, Jalalabad Airfield became Jaff. We had a, a fire base out there. And we'd literally just gotten done uh, with that patrol and had called it because it was about 150 degrees down in the valley and there wasn't anybody out wanting to play. So uh, we headed back to base and had literally just drunk, driven through the gate and uh, got a radio call on uh, SATCOM that told us, or uh, the team sergeant, to come up on uh, the telephone when we got back to the Ops Inn. So we made it back to the fire base and he ran in to the, uh, the Ops Inn and made the phone call back to C. DeSoto.
1: Yeah, so, okay, so you guys got back in, made the call, and and then you got the order to roll out. Is that how it went?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So he comes running out of the Ops in and says, uh, hey, hey guys, grab your gear. Uh, helicopter just went down and there's four SEALs on the run, and we're headed up there. And we were asking all kinds of questions. It's like, hey, what are we doing? Exactly where are we going? Um, trying to figure out what we needed to bring, what we needed to take, um, basically the way we needed to operate to get ready to go. And we nobody had that information at the time. It hadn't made it down yet. Uh, we didn't have it. So we basically just decided to bring everything. So we tore up our entire team house, grabbing equipment and gear. Um, They said that our birds were 20 minutes out at that point. Um, We got all our stuff together, uh, ran out to the airfield, grabbed our Afghan force, which was the the MRF, the Mobile Reaction Force. They were actually a really good group of guys. Um, They were were funded by another organization and trained by us and some of the other ODAs. And then we were sitting out on the airfield. Uh, Just waiting for the birds to come in, and uh, another 47, uh, a 160th 47, landed
1: out on the airfield. Just for the listeners, the 47 is the Chinook, right?
2: Yes. Yes. Yeah, CH-47 Chinook, a twin rotor helicopter. Um, 47 landed out on the airfield, and a bunch of guys started getting off. um, Started heading over to a JSOC compound that was had just been built over on that side of the airfield. Uh, The team leader ran over there was like, hey, let's go see if these guys know what's going on. Because it was kind of uh, what we were part of at that point was kind of the only game in town. And uh, he went over there, talked to them. I guess they were the, I don't remember if they were lead or trail of that element, but they were actually the other aircraft that was on the flight of two. That one was shot down. So we got some information on the, uh, from them. They came back, team leader kind of briefed us, said, hey, those guys were on the other flight. It was the other, their helicopter that got shot down. Um, it was their guys on that helicopter. They were going out to do a QRF, which is a quick reaction force for a team of SEALs, a team of four SEALs that were up in the Gulf doing a, a recce mission, you know, reconnaissance mission, and had gotten into contact and we're on the run, and at that point, that's the most that we knew about it. About that time, our uh, our birds landed. It was two UH-60s, and uh, we loaded up, and we loaded up all the the MRF that we could take with us as well. Those guys found out that we were going to the corn gall, and they came armed to the teeth with as many RPGs and recoilless rifles as they could carry. We had to send one of them back. To or a couple of them back because they were, they were bringing along a, a trailer mounted quad Zook, which is a 12.7 millimeter anti-aircraft gun that they wanted to bring in with them. And we just, <laughs> couldn't, we couldn't fit it at all. Um, so we took as many of them when we got on the birds, uh, we took off the the pilots and crew chiefs said, Hey, we got to move. Uh, they had literally just gotten in country and hadn't even unpacked all their stuff or didn't done any of the qualifications that they had to do. So they actually couldn't fly at night. And so they had to get up there to Asadabad as fast as they could. So they put the hammer down. Um, we were flying up the river there towards Abad, about 10 feet off the river, it felt like. Um, we ended up getting there before dark and uh, landed. Then we linked up with our other ODA the operational detachment alpha that was up there and also the B team, which is a headquarters element for a special forces company. And uh, we talked to the, uh, the company commander tried to get some more Intel as to what was going on. And basically he told us the same thing, basically what we already knew that there was a helicopter that gone, uh, gone down that was part of QRF for the four seals that had been compromised, and that's where it set for that that evening and and basically that night.
1: So, Travis, how many days after the seals were engaged and and like on the run? How many days between that time till this point where you're at in your story now?
2: That would have been the same day. As far okay, as I so
1: know. okay, okay.
2: Because I know that they got engaged. They immediately called for the uh, QRF to come in. The QRF went in to uh, help them out. That helicopter had gotten shot and down. And when we were on the airfield is when they returned. So I assume, and as far as I know, it was that same day.
1: Okay. All right. So from the so then you, you guys were at, at ABAD and... From there, did you move to, like, a, a forward operating base in the Coringale, or how did that work?
2: No, actually, we stayed there at ABAD, and we were trying to get a, a another flight up to the crash site. But they shut the airspace down up there, and they weren't letting anybody fly because they were afraid of losing another bird. Um, so we started trying to come up with a plan of how we could get up there. And it kind of started off, we stayed there... A, believe we stayed there Stayed there. The, all the next day. Uh, we came up with a plan, uh, briefed it to C.J. Soda. C.J. soda liked it and they agreed. And so that night uh, we were going to head out. Of course, we didn't have any vehicles because we flew up there. Now the other ODA that was there based at ABAD had vehicles. And so they grabbed their vehicles, any of the extra vehicles they had. Then we ran over. There was a Marine contingent there at ABAD. And we went over and talked to their gunny and he gave up a bunch of his vehicles, but just asked if he could keep, you know, leave one Marine on each one of his vehicles. So they, you know, still have control of them. So we got those vehicles, um, got them all positioned, ready to go. Um, some of the, the, I guess the remainder of team uh, SEAL team 10 that was there, they heard about what was going on, uh, that we were going out and they asked to join so they jumped on the vehicles with us, and then that night we rolled out of Abad uh, in the middle of the night, headed up into the valley as far as we could go, or into another valley on the backside of the Cornwall. We didn't want to drive into the Cornwall. Uh, we'd done operations up there previously and knew it was a bad area, and especially if there was something going on up there, there's really only one road in and one road out of that valley. And so we knew it would, uh, it, would have been, it would have been an IED fest all the way in, and I'm sure they would have been setting up ambushes on it, knowing somebody was going to come in. So we drove into the, into the mountains on the other side, the backside of the Gall as far as we could, set up a, basically a patrol base or a video, a vehicle drop-off site, and then uh, we were waiting there for a while. I wasn't really for sure what we were waiting on, talked to the captain. The captain said that there was another element that was coming to link up with us. Um, and there was a, a, a ranger platoon with some R, uh, RRD guys, ranger reconnaissance detachment, and also some guys from, uh, the Navy uh, developmental group that were coming with them. Uh, so we waited there till first light when, uh, when those guys got there and linked up with them and then started prepping to, uh, go on foot the rest of the way up into the mountains and try to get to the crash site.
1: So this the, the spot where you guys set up your patrol base is this the same spot that would function as like the uh, where the command would uh, you know command the certain the certain different elements that were trying to find these guys?
2: No, that was just the this one was just the video the the actual the major command siege of Sodaf had moved to to Jaff as a forward command. So they actually moved into our fire base there at Jalalabad as a major overall command element there. The, okay. uh, that VDO site was really just where we dropped off the vehicles. Uh, we were gonna have to leave a few guys there. So we had the Marines that were gonna stay there with their vehicles and uh, the other vehicles. Then we had two or three SF guys that were staying there for different reasons. One guy on my team, um, I made the recommendation to team front that he stay, he, he busted up his ankle Uh, Pretty bad in the Tora Bora uh, a few weeks before that or about a week before that and didn't think it'd be a good idea for him to be humping a lot of weight up in the mountains like that. Right. So
1: now, so from this point forward, you guys went straight into what, like you last known locations. How did that work?
2: Yeah. So initially our whole goal was to try to get to the crash site. Uh, we, We needed to get boots on the ground, get American boots on the ground at the crash site because uh, nobody had been up there yet. So we got ready to go after we linked, everybody was linked up and, and prepped. Um, I had my, my interpreter, I told him, I was like, Hey man, uh, go get me every donkey that you can find within like 20 miles of where we're standing right now. Cause have done a lot of operations up in those mountains and you, you just can't move effectively with any, without using them with any type of weight on, just because of the severity of the terrain, the altitude up there is just crazy. So he'd gone out and found about 50 donkeys that he brought back. and (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, with the the donkey boys with him. So they're donkey handler guys. And uh, so we started loading up donkeys with our kit. We were dropping plates. Uh, We still had a whole bunch of equipment because we didn't know if we were going to be doing a blocking position or what we were doing. But when we found out that we were going to be walking up there, uh, we started dropping plates and different uh, different pieces of equipment that we knew we weren't going to need, um, and started loading the donkeys up with everything that we would need. Uh, some of the other elements that were there asked if they could use some of the donkeys, and we were like, "Yeah, absolutely. That's what we got them for." So the rangers started loading up kit, and the uh, the dev group, pretty much everybody, grabbed some donkeys and started loading up kit on donkeys because it's a lot easier to move when you got a pack mule. Right. And so then. Uh, at that point, that morning, we headed out from the video and headed up the mountains. We we kind of found a ridgeline doing a map recon and found a ridgeline that ran basically straight to the area that we wanted to go to without having to drop down or climb any other mountains. We just had to get up on this ridge and start trying to get there. Of course, that ridge was about six to 7,000 feet in elevation, additional to where we were at at the time. So... It was a pretty big hump that first day. I know that we made it about four, five K in, and about four or five K in elevation that first day.
1: Wow. So, and, and so even moving through the terrain with the donkeys, that'll still physically weigh you down, right?
2: Oh, absolutely, man. It was, it was rough. It was uh, you'd have to do it to understand it. It was, that was one of the hardest movements that I've seen. In a long time. Uh, it was in my top five, I'd probably say, one of the most difficult movements in, in any of the theaters that I've been in to, to make it through. Um, when we took off we had I'd probably say about 120 man force and about 50 donkeys it looked like Merrill's Marauders moving up the mountains because it was all just switchbacks all the way up to start with until we kind of got on top of that ridge and we could start moving which we were still gaining altitude. But the walking was a little bit easier because the uh, the angle wasn't quite as bad. The the grade wasn't as bad in certain areas, so we could move a little bit faster Um, during that day. We thought we'd come across maybe a couple IEDs. Um, We weren't spending the time to to do anything with those. Uh, We just marked in the lead element. Was just marking them, and we were moving around because again, it was speed. At that point, to try to get to the crash site as fast as we could. Uh, we moved the entire first day to the end of the day, uh, and that evening times when we ran out of water the first time. Um, we had an aerial resupply. They decided they would, they'd fly aircraft into where we were at. Uh, so they flew in aircraft and gave us our first, uh, water resupply.
1: Okay, so and, and that's that was day one of from moving from that vehicle site to where you're where you're currently at, right? That's a whole yes. twenty four hours. Yes. All right, yep. so once you guys got to the end of that first day, did you start to maneuver towards the crash site or last known locations or how did that work?
2: Yeah, that's where we were headed. Like that whole time, that whole first day and the second, we were headed up to the crash site because that was the goal right then at that point was to get to the crash site and get boots on the ground at the crash site and and then go from there, basically. So we got our resupply that night. Um, The next morning, we started moving again uh, to try to get a little bit closer Towards that afternoon, evening time frame, we ran out of water again. Uh, one of the elements that was with us turned around and went back. They decided that they were going to uh, go back to Abad, get in their vehicles, drive all the way around to the actual entrance of the Cornwall Valley, set up a blocking position there, try to push in as far as they could, and then set up a blocking position to try to keep anything from moving out of the valley in the hopes that if these guys that were on the run uh, were making their way down the valley, that they would run into them. Or if anything had happened, if they were trying to get someone out of the valley, that the blocking position would stop them. So those guys had turned around. We kept pushing on. Uh, we started running out of water that evening, that afternoon. Uh, so we called a halt, put together all the water that we could, and mounted up a small element because we were probably about, I'd say, 4 to 5K out from the crash site by this point um, put together a small element plus them up on water and sent them out. And it was a mix of the seals, the Rangers and the SF guys that were in that element, uh, pushed them out to make a final, try to make a final push to the crash site. They made it about probably it about a kilometer outside of the uh, crash site. And then they ran out of water and then had a guy go down as a heat casualty. So they had to stop and, uh, hook him up with an IV. Uh, In the meantime, we'd, we'd started moving again. Night had fallen. So we'd stopped. They brought in another water resupply for us, which is kind of funny because the only place that you could even stop to try to take a rest or break, we'd stopped for the night actually, um, because the terrain was just too severe to try to move on those trails at night. And, uh, the only place you could sleep is actually on the trail. It was the only flat spot without rolling down the mountain. When that, the helicopter came in that night, they were hovering overhead, kicking out pallets. And we're sleeping on this trail. And this trail's you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years old. It's been there forever. And uh, then all the donkey shit was blowing <laughs> up. He was so tired and frustrated with everything that, that uh, I jumped up and Like my Wooby went blowing down the mountain. I had to go catch it and grab, try to grab a hold of it and donkey shit flying everywhere. And uh, the Team Star was getting pissed. I got pissed, was yelling about being covered in donkey shit. And that, and then why were they covering that long? They should just kick the water out. And of course, they they kicked the water out and then it rolled down the mountain. So we got about half the resupply. Uh, So we plus back up with water then. Um, then we stayed there for the rest of that night. The next morning, the, the next morning, uh, we were getting ready to start moving again. We got a radio call. Oh, excuse me. Let me back up. Um, that night also after the resupply, we saw a, uh, the CSAR element. Uh, 47s flew by. We saw them flying towards the crash site. So they'd opened the uh, the airspace up in the meantime for the CSAR element, the combat search and rescue element, which was, uh, I believe, it was a Ranger platoon coming out of, I don't know if they flew out. I don't know where they flew out of either Jalalabad or Bagram. And so they flew out of there and we saw those birds fly by and head up towards the crash site. It's where they landed and what they did, I really don't know. We weren't part of that. But we saw them getting up there, which we were glad somebody was, you know, finally getting boots on the ground at the crash site. So then uh, that next morning we got the radio call. They say, hey, hold in place. Uh, we've got the element up on the crash site now. And uh, we'll send another, we'll send the birds back in tonight and pick you guys up and drop you off up at the top of the mountain. And so we held in place. We moved maybe another kilometer or so to get to a better LZ or landing zone. And then uh, that one element that we pushed out prior to, I believe they made link up like that day with the, with the uh, Ranger element that was up on top of the mountain. So then that night uh, 47s came back in, picked up all the Americans and some of the Afghanis, because that's all we could load. And then they flew us up to the top of the mountain and dropped us off. Uh, after we got off the birds and then uh, the sea star element started loading the bodies that they had recovered from the crash site onto the birds that we'd gotten off of. We reinforced their perimeter that they had up on top of the mountain. And then that night, my team sergeant came over and sent me one of my uh, and oh, excuse me, it was me and my two engineers on the team out to an LPOP, probably about 100 meters outside the patrol base there on a high-speed avenue of approach, which was a large trail that ran along that ridgeline, just same trail that we'd been walking on, but coming from the other direction. We found a good place up in the rocks, and we basically kind of dug in right there for the night. Sometime during the night, probably early morning, uh, we started hearing a lot of noise coming down the trail, so we set up for an ambush. Um, sounds, sounded like sounds of the horses or donkeys moving. We're trying to see if we could make out voices or anything. Really couldn't hear much that went on for about 30 to 45 minutes, but nothing actually came. ended up coming down the trail. Uh, we'd radioed everything in said, Hey, we're going to, we're going to light this thing off if we get anybody coming in. And, uh, but nothing ended up happening. So that was pretty much that whole night up until the next morning.
1: Yeah. So, okay. So did you got, you guys, go back to the larger element after that morning?
2: Yeah. When first light came, we got a radio call said, Hey, you guys pull back in. Um, we got a mission brief. Uh, so basically what had happened is uh, we'd gotten in intelligence Intel saying that uh, they were getting a lot of beacon hits. So our radios have a basically an emergency setting that just shoots a beacon off saying, Hey, I'm here. And uh, they were getting a lot of those pings all over the mountain. So they were sending out small elements to go investigate all these pings. Because that by that point, I think they'd found all the bodies from the crash site. There was no survivors. Um, they may have been looking for one more body, which they found either that day or had just found that morning. I'm not really for sure. But I seem to remember that there was one more they were looking for other than that. Everybody was accounted for from the helicopter. Um, so that morning we pulled back in, got the team together. The uh, Our company SAR major, the, the B team SAR major, who had started running things up there on top of the mountain, as the senior ranking guy up there came down and said, hey, we've got a, a beacon hit that you guys are going to check out. Um, it's about four days old. So it would have been one of the beacon hits like that had started really early on in this whole Whole ordeal, and it's about 4k down the trail down the mountain, shouldn't be that bad. It's still up on top of the mountain, so you guys aren't going to have to come down. Um, and you guys should be back before dark. So, we kind of set around, made a hasty plan. Uh, it was basically we were dumping all the gear that we had, rucks, everything were staying up top, basically just what you could carry. We brought two rucksacks with us, uh, one for the radio. And uh, another one or two, I can't remember, for basically food and water, just to try to stay as light as we could and uh, to move fast. And so we prepped for that and then headed out that morning to go check out that beacon hit.
1: And so so basically with these beacon hits, it's like an emergency signal. The guys press it and you guys are investigating every single beacon hit that you, that's popping up.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Because that's exactly what it is. And we were investigating every one of them to, because we didn't know, we didn't, we had no idea what was going on at that point. Uh, All we knew was that there was a helicopter crash. We were there at the crash. We knew there was no survivors from the crash. And then as far as the four guys that were on the run, um, nobody knew anything. There was only one. Iridium phone call that made it out as far as I know. And that was basically the phone call that said that they were, had been compromised and that they were in contact and they were in heavy contact and they were on the run. And that's the only information that came out of that valley or from that element. And so we were still going off of that. And then that,
1: that that was the phone call made by Michael Murphy, right? The the
2: seal. Yeah. 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 And for my element, I I would imagine some of the other guys there knew, knew those guys, but we didn't, we didn't know who they were. All we knew was it was a four man seal recon element and that there had been one, one call made and that's basically all we'd gotten. So we, so the whole element up on top of the mountain was basically at this point, still going into search and rescue and trying to find these guys. And so we had to go check out every lead, every possibility that we could to try to find them because we didn't know where they were or what was going on. So there was beacon hits popping up all over and pretty much elements from every service that was up there because you had Navy SEALs, you had Navy Dev Group, you had Air Force PJs, you had CCT guys that were attached to everybody, you had two platoons of rangers you had rd guys and you had two sf odas that were up there so it was kind of a who's who of special operations up there on top of that and none of us had trained together or had rehearsed anything together it was kind of a hodgepodge of different elements and different units that we were up there making it work and right and, you know even to the point of having to share crypto and and because you know different elements were on different crypto being our our uh the security pieces that we have in our radios that allow them to talk together. So our radios weren't even talking together. So we were having to share all that so that we could talk to each other and radio frequencies and then coordinate movements of who's going where and to what. And so I know elements of the Rangers, elements of the SEALs, and, and our elements from the ODAs were all moving out to go check out the different beacon hits. So you were, a, you were a
1: Ranger at one point in your career before you went on to Special Forces, right? So did that help? you know, like uh, with dealing, being able to work with the Rangers?
2: Yeah, actually it did. Um, And luckily most of, there was a lot of my team, at least four of us that had been previous Rangers in the Ranger battalions for a period of time. My team sergeant had been, he'd been in the 75th Ranger Regiment for years prior to him being uh, a Green Beret. So it it helped out quite a bit because we knew how they operated. And they had a good idea how we operated and we were all just trying to figure out, you know, how we were all going to operate together. And so it just made sense to kind of keep everybody in their own separate units, their own separate elements. And so you had those internal SOPs and those internal workings and not have to worry about other people on the outside and send them out separately to different places. And so we got sent out to this one, uh, we started moving down the mountain, uh, to try to go put eyes on the location where that beacon hit was. So as we were moving down that trail, once we got a few kilometers into the movement, it was a pretty easy movement during the day. It was downhill, decent trail. It would have been tough to do at night during the day. It wasn't too bad. it was really eerie up there. The terrain was really harsh. Uh, the vegetation was like some, if you haven't worked up there in that area, you'd never know it from being in Afghanistan. It's its almost like a jungle up there. The trees are huge. the It's almost like Jurassic Park. So we moved down. We'd run into a couple of fighting positions, like dug in, gun port fighting positions that had some MRE trash and stuff inside of them that these guys had found on resupply bundles that had been being dropped all over the mountainside to try to resupply these uh, these these seals that were on the run, hoping they'd see one. So I guess they had been in there, you know, eating some MREs or something. Um, uh, we're, we, we're talking about t-
1: t- the Taliban, right?
2: Yes. Yeah, the Taliban had found these, these bundles, these speedball bundles, and uh, had been you know, getting the food and stuff out of them. So we made it to where uh, we ended up making it to where the, the beacon hit was and uh, looked over is over the edge of a very small cliff or, or over the edge of a cliff anyway. And there was evidence of a fight all around, you know, you know, pot marks in the rocks, shell casings, all kinds of stuff that were, that were in the area. So we held up there, called back, said, Hey, we got eyes on the beacon hit location. Um, there's nothing here. Uh there is a village down the mountain to our front. But no, nothing here. And they're like, well, all right, stand by. We just got some uh intelligence saying that uh we got heavy enemy uh traffic in that village. And We're like, okay. Uh so we'll wait here. Uh we got a call about maybe 30 minutes later saying, Hey, we just got a brand new new beacon hit. Just popped up. Uh in that village to your front and to stand by. So we waited there a little bit longer. We called up, told them, hey, you guys need to hurry up, you know, figure out what's going on because it's about to start getting dark. Uh, and we didn't want to try to make the climb back up to the top of the mountain at night. Uh, and then shortly after that, we got a phone, or a phone call. We got a radio call saying, hey, we just got a letter from somebody out of that village written in English saying that he is in that village and needs to be rescued. And they said, go get him. We said, okay, Roger, be advised. There's only six Americans and two Afghanis in this force and we're moving. And so we sat around for a second, made a hasty plan. And basically the plan was just to try to fight our way into the closest house that we could get into uh, Alamo up and, and figure it out from there as how, how we could move. Uh, So we dropped off the side of the mountain, which was basically just a cliff going straight down and literally started climbing, trying to climb our way down to the village because it had gotten dark by this point. Um, We made it halfway down the mountain when this storm, that was unlike any storm I've ever seen, rolled rolled into that valley. I mean, it was pouring rain. The temperature dropped 40 to 50 degrees and that's going from like 100, 110, down to like 50. Wow. And had guys, you know, shivering, beginning stages of, you know, probably hypothermia. Um, and then we couldn't move anymore. We got stuck. Uh, we almost lost a couple guys over the edge. Uh, so we ended up having to hold up and stay where we were at. We were standing on trees trying to, to hang on. The trees were growing out at an angle, and they were basically flat, they were horizontal because that's how steep the mountain was. And we were standing on these trees stacked up two or three deep on the trees to try to keep from sliding off. And the, the rain just kept coming. And then then the lightning storm was getting crazy. The radio, uh, the captain was on the radio. The comms guy was holding the antenna and he was telling the captain to get off the radio because his hair was standing straight up because there was so much static electricity in the air. Uh, wow. We got stuck basically stuck there at that place. We couldn't move up or we couldn't move down. We couldn't move, um, because of the rain, the storm and the terrain that we were in, we made the determination that we were going to push up to a little flat spot that we just passed. So we pushed up there and held up there for the rest of that evening during the storm, kind of huddled together, trying to stay warm because all we had was what we were wearing on us at the time we left because we didn't have our rucks or anything. So we were supposed to be back before dark. Um, passed the storm out that way. First light in the next morning, we got ready to start moving. We looked up the mountain. Uh, We saw some little mud monsters running around the top of the mountain, got the binos out, took a look at them. We realized they were Americans. They were a a ranger section, two squads of rangers that had been pushed. They pushed down from the top of the mountain to try to come link up to where we were at. And they'd made it down there that night. They were trying to get a resupply bundle that was hung up in a tree, uh, trying to get some more water. So we, we got on the radio with them. Then ended up making link up. Came up with a real hasty plan because now we had two squads of rangers, uh, Ranger P.L., one of their medics, and then my O.D.A. All together now. So we had quite a bit more firepower. We found a finger that curled around in the valley, down into the village, and so we walked down that finger down to the to the village. And we just made made it to the edge of the village when we saw a guy start yelling. Uh, he started saying, Dr. Marcus, Dr. Marcus, bang, bang, Bagram, Bagram is the Afghani? He almost got shot because he just started yelling at us running down the mountain. Uh, we ended up pucking him, which is a uh, personnel under control. So we took control of him, started trying to ask him questions in broken, uh, broken two in English about what was going on. Uh, basically, all we came up with was there's somebody named Dr. Marcus that had been shot, and he went to Bagram, and we were like, "All right, so maybe this guy's already moved." They moved this guy; something happened. So we entered the village. Uh, the Rangers were securing the buildings as we moved through. This guy that we had found, he was going from room to room or building to building, saying, "Oh, in here and here." All the buildings that we were going into, there wasn't anybody in there. So we started getting afraid that they were trying to hide this guy and move him out of the village. So me, the captain. My combo guy, we took off running uh, down the trail to try to get to the other side of the village out the, uh, the, the opening of the v- little valley that it was in to try to put a blocking position in there just in case they were trying to move anybody out of the village that we'd stop them right there. We came running around a corner and you know there was a group of people moving up the trail. And we, I noticed one of them was a lot taller than the others looked different. He was, st- he was wearing Man Jams, uh, Afghani clothing, and looked a lot different. The closer we got, I was like, man, that guy's American. And we ran up to him, and I'm like, hey, man, you must be Marcus. And he's like, you he got this big, big smile on his face. He's like, yes, I am. He's like, man, wow. I'm sure I'm glad to see you guys. And I'm like, all right, brother, we're going to get you out of here. And uh, he's like, I'm just, he's like, I'm ready to get it. I'm ready to go home. And I'm like, all right, we'll get you out of here as soon as we can. Then I grabbed him uh, with another one of the guys and we took him into a, a little enclosed area. And so I started doing an assessment on him, see how he was medically, asking me if he's hurt anywhere. he said he'd been shot once, had some shrapnel wounds. I uh, started looking at those, getting those bandaged up. Uh, Some of the other guys had come in and started asking him bona fides questions, getting some intel from him, asking him about the other guys. He said he had a GPS on him, that he'd marked all the locations anytime any time he lost somebody. He said uh, we also found out, that's the first time we found out that he was the only survivor, that all the rest of the guys he had thought were dead. Um, My comms guy got his GPS working. It was all busted up. Got his GPS working for a few minutes. Um, We got the grids. We ended up radioing grids back up to the top of the mountain of where the possible locations for the other, uh, the other guys that had been killed were at, um, the, the Rangers secured a building for us, um, and put out security around the building. So I, then we moved, we picked him up, moved him into one of the rooms in the building, secured the building. So we we're going to have to maintain control of him for quite a while. Cause we found him that morning. And they weren't going to bring another aircraft in until that night to try to get him out of there. So you guys were in this
1: village for an entire day before any type of aircraft would be able to pick you up or or provide air support. Is, Is that right?
2: Yeah, we were in the village for probably 12 to 18 hours after we found him until night came. Um, during that time, me and him sat and talked. Uh, I stayed with him the whole time. Uh, the Ranger medic came in, helped me out a little bit. The, uh, and then some of the other guys had just kind of come in and talked to him. The captain and the PL from the Rangers had come in and talked to him, try to get some more intel on the situation. Um, he had drawn a map on his leg of all the LPOPs that he would seen that the Taliban had set up around the village just waiting for us to leave so that they could come back in the village and get him and
1: so those are observation points that's what that's what an op stands for right
2: yeah it's listening post observation posts so basically little security positions so they can watch to make sure he doesn't go anywhere so then uh he gave us that intel the villagers actually dug his equipment up they had buried it out in a field they dug his equipment up and brought it back to him because he was he was really concerned at one point he asked us how many guys we had. And we said, Hey, we got, you know, two squads of Rangers and, and, uh, an ODA here. And he said that that's not enough people and he needed his gun. So the villagers actually went and got him his gun and his equipment back and brought it back to him, uh, where they had hidden it out in the, uh, out in the field. So we sat there, that was pretty much it for the rest of the day. Uh, until that evening that evening we got ready to move got him all bandaged up got some food in him got some antibiotics in him got some ivs in him got him ready to move uh we moved down to a little small flat spot that we could find Uh, they at first had said they're going to bring in 247s to take all of us out of there then they said they were going to bring in four blackhawks and then finally it came down to okay fine you guys are staying to look for the last um the last guy, cause they'd found the other two, two bodies. I believe it was uh, Michael Murphy and Danny Dietz they'd found and they were still missing Matt Axelson. And so they're like, you guys are going to stay and help help out with that search, you know, put him on the bird. So it was the uh, one black Hawk. It was the air force PJ rescue bird that came in. So it came in that night um, before it got there, we'd noticed a lot of lights up on a ridgeline. We radioed in, said, "Hey, do we got anybody moving up there?" Our guys had said no. We asked the villagers. The villagers said, "Hey, it's none of their people." So we could only assume it was the Taliban. Um, we had ISR go check it out. They said, "Yeah, we got uh, we got eyes on an element, an armed element moving on the the, the ridgeline." And so at that point, the CCT guy that was attached to our team started calling in air and they put on a hell of a show on the side of that mountain before that helicopter came in. So that helicopter came in. It landed. I looked over to grab Marcus to go put him on a bird. and He was gone. I looked over the little wall that we were crouched down behind and he was already halfway to the bird. I jumped over the wall immediately in my head. Had a moment of terror that the uh, the guys that were getting off that bird would see some somebody in man jams running at their bird and, and take a shot at him. But managed to get to him before he got there. Uh, he jumped on the bird. I was yelling at the PJs to get out of here. Uh, they had turned around and uh, got them back on the bird, and the, the bird got out of there at that point. We linked back up with the ranger element. And then started moving out of the village. Then we spent the next, I don't know, probably about five to six days, I think, uh, walking those mountains, trying to find the uh, the last guy. Uh, the villagers knew where he was at. They knew something. We knew that. They didn't want to tell us. They were afraid that we were going to you know, take retribution on the village, I guess. Uh, so we were working on the village quite a bit uh, to try to get them to to tell us something. Uh, We moved around. Every day was exactly the same. We didn't have any equipment with us, so they drop in an aerial resupply of food, water, um, IVs. Our boots were falling apart. Our clothes were falling apart. So sometimes they'd drop in some more uniforms, some more boots. Um, We'd wake up in the morning, I'd stick everybody with an IV to get them rehydrated because they were, they were dehydrated. Uh, I believe the, the ranger medic would do the same with his, his guys. Uh, they'd grab an MR, a couple MREs, a few bottles of water, stick them in our pockets and then we'd move for the rest of the day. And then that night another resupply pallet would come in and it was just rinse and repeat for the next few days. So finally, uh, they said it was time for us to get out of there.
1: So you guys didn't uh, end up finding the body of the last seal?
2: No, we did not. There was a, another seal element that found him. Um, they, f- they flew in on the bird that we were flying out on. So it was a couple 47s came in. Uh, we linked up with the Marines there for a while because they were moving around the mountains at this point, uh, let them know that there was a bunch of Americans everywhere. Um, we'd linked up with a dev group element that had a patrol base there. We'd gotten some more socks and equipment from them because they had a bunch in their patrol base. Uh, they had went back and refit and had flown back out on a helicopter. Uh, when they landed, they got off, we got on, uh, we did a quick powwow there beside the bird, told them what we'd seen, what we'd done, and that we figured the villagers knew something. They asked if we could leave our, our, uh, our intelligence guy, he agreed so he stayed with them we got on the bird flew back to abad uh he stayed with the seals there it wasn't very long like i believe it was that next day that they went into the village and started talking to the villagers again and the villagers finally broke and said yep they knew where the body was the reason we couldn't find him and that nobody had found him because they had found the body had picked him up and moved him closer to the village, and then had buried him in a shallow grave outside the village. So they took him to the to that site, and and that's when they found uh, Matt Axelson's body, and he was the last one.
0: So yeah, a complete complete different perspective than men, than most people are probably accustomed to, just based on reading the book and seeing the movie, and and people's understanding of you know special forces, specifically to the army. U.S. Army Special Forces role in that entire operation Um, and you know it just kudos to the quiet professionals you know up to this point I mean a lot of people don't know about that I did not even highlighted it until Travis to the end of Travis's career on the inside I've actually mentioned it to people like specifically you know part of my company specifically took part in that and haven't really highlighted but it's good to get the narrative out of how how it actually went down Lee. Like uh, coming off of that topic, uh, last week we we talked about the acronym OPS, which is called observe, prepare, and survive, and it's an acronym that I use for my company for Philcraft to teach people survival and preparedness um, psychology and really really methodology on on thinking their way through a stressful uh, potential man-made or natural catastrophe. So real real quick, observe. Is you know just being situation situationally aware and understanding your environment, and and identifying and perceiving potential threats and paying attention to that instinct that you have naturally in you to be aware of a a potential or a dangerous situation. Leading into the next uh, part of that acronym, the P is prepare. Now, prepare is something that we do in special operations all the time. I mean, we are. Especially in the the Green Beret community, we are um, great at what we do mission-wise because of all the planning that we do. Uh, We have an acronym called PACE, which is Plan, or which is uh, Primary Alternate Contingency and Emergency, which is basically developing a contingency to every single situation that we encounter. So we are well-versed in planning and preparing. So when you're in that stressful event and you observe and perceive a threat you might not be at the point in which the threat is has evolved or developed and it, and it might not be a life uh, threatening situation while that's taking place there's this period of lull and you know in and in, in gunfights we call it a lull, a lull on fire where you could do a lot of things and and what i want you guys to do is prepare i want you to pr- prepare your mind I want you to make a plan of action. I want you to get in the right mindset to get ready to take the next steps, which is a which is a plan of action. And I talk about this, and I mentioned this, and I, I want to stress it uh, again and again. Is hope is not a course of action. So thinking about something and not actually doing it um, is not going to get you out of a survival situation. Since we have Travis here, Tra- you know, Travis is a subject matter expert at all these things that I talk about. The things that I say, you know, even I'm rolling it up in my, my own proprietary acronym, are things that we grew up in special forces um, in. Um, Travis, uh, when you think about preparing uh, mentally, um, you know, getting ready for a potential uh, action to take, are there any, are, are there any tips or anything that you could, that you could lay out on how you think or, or like kind of like that mindset that you get ready right before you go into, to an actual stressful event or maybe a stressful, uh, event that requires a reaction? Like what's your mindset? What's, what's that process like?
2: So, yeah, absolutely. You kind of mentioned it earlier. It is about uh, hope is not a plan of action. And that's one thing that I actually was a, a mantra of mine was abandon all hope, it kind of comes from Dante's Inferno but I use it in a different meaning, is abandon the hope, like get rid of it because you can hope all day long and, and like you said, hope is not a plan of action. Hoping does not make something happen, doing makes something happen. You have to get it into your mind and in the mindset of I can't hope this is going to turn out okay or I can't hope this is going to happen. I'm going to make it turn out okay, and I'm going to make something happen. So just having the mindset of going in of, of, of I'm just not going to ride this out, but I am going to – I am the, the driver of my own vehicle, if you will, is I'm going to make it happen. I'm just not going to hope that some, something else comes up or someone else intervenes. I'm going to be that person is kind of the, the idea that i've always
0: carried and that's you know it, when you think about special forces guys it's i we get the question all the time about you know how how do you get in the right mindset how do you how do you train that and it's it's a difficult question because there's lots of variables in in training mindset um but but one of the things that you know travis just just talked about is when you when you understand that hope or wishful thinking isn't a course of action or a plan of action it makes your mind, you train your mind to react. So when you're actually doing something like training a drill on the range, you're doing a workout, you're involved in a, uh, a mentally tough maybe scenario, situation in training, you have to get your mindset and the mindset that you have to react accordingly. And preparing is is being able to stop Look, listen, you know, doing the whole sales thing, but then coming up with a plan of action. Now, with, with all that being said, that's that's kind of uh, – it, it almost seems metaphysical to me because there's a lot – there's so many variables involved in it. But it, it's, it's simple. It's a simple process. When you're stressed out, you know, cor- cortisol levels increase. Physiologically, st- things start to happen. Take a breath. Start thinking deliberately and come up with a plan. The plan could be as easy as, okay, I just heard one gunshot. If I hear one more gunshot, I'm going to move to the, the door. But the reason people die in survival uh, you know, type situations is because they don't frame those thoughts. They don't think about those specific things. They don't deliberately say, I'm going to prepare my mind. So the acronym is by design. Uh, by default is really to pull you out of that moment where you're frozen in time and you just can't think because you're so overly stressed. So remember when it comes down to it, um, just think ops, think ops, think ops. And then, uh, uh, that was some good insight from Travis. John, you something?
1: So, yeah. So just to, to kind of touch on this, can you give an example like of a, uh, like let's say a scenario, uh, you know, people are on the subway in New York City, and there are three doors on the car, on the train car, and a guy walks into the middle car, and he starts. You know, he pulls out a pistol and starts shooting people. Can you kind of explain, like, like give a little step by step how people can apply the OPS um, acronym to the situation?
0: Yeah, yeah, and and what's cool, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna wing this one. And and I'm gonna use Travis because Travis I've never even briefed Travis on ops. We don't even talk business because Travis is my buddy. But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the observe and then let, I'm gonna let Travis do the prepare. So and we, we'll get into the uh, survive next next week. But first, the number one thing is observe, right? So something happens, somebody moves into the train car, and let's say they start. You said they start started firing. Or they or they started to do something reactive, and maybe you sense danger. The first thing is to observe and perceive that what you're seeing is actually happening. A lot of people they they mind trick themselves into thinking that whatever they're hearing, whatever they're seeing, isn't reality, and it's it's and it's crazy, but it's it's like a psychological um, aspect to kind of our reaction to to events. So. If they haven't seen it before in real life and it, and it happens in front of them, they can try to convince themselves that what they're seeing isn't real. So immediately observe the situation and realize that it is real and it is happening. And when you do that, there's there's two levels of threat, right? There's, there's the perception of threat of something that's occurring or not occurring. And there, then there's the actual threat itself, right? So the only difference between the two is – the time to the actual threat. Or or maybe you might look at it as like the clock to the actual time that you potentially could die. So when you start to observe, you start to perceive and then you ask questions like, okay, somebody is in this situation, is perceiving I'm perceiving them to be dangerous. I I perceive them to potentially be life threatening to me. What are my next actions? And then Travis, um, take prepare for me, bro.
2: So I really look at, and like Mikey said, you know, we don't talk a lot of business, but prepare is in two different ways to prepare. So you prepare physically, and then you prepare mentally. So the physical preparation, once you've gone through the 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 O portion, is now you understand that there is a threat, and maybe even before the threat has occurred. So you start preparing physically. What I mean by that is you, you put yourself in an advantageous position. Now you start moving. Maybe the threat hadn't even occurred yet, but just in case there was a threat, you start circling around. Maybe you try to move to a position of, you know, on his backside, you know, on the backside of him so he can't see you so well. Maybe you try to put a, a seat between you and him. Maybe if you're actually going to try to engage in one way, shape, or form, you move closer or you get good sight lines on that, that individual. And that's how you'd start preparing physically. Mentally, you start got to start making the preparations too. What am I going to do when this goes loud? Exactly what am I going to do? Am I going to engage this person? Do I have family here? Sons, kids, daughters, wives, whatever it may be, that am, I'm more concerned about protecting them than engaging this person? Or if I do engage this person, what am I going to do to this person? There is no fair in a fight. And you have to mentally set yourself up to that to be savage at that point. And that's kind of how I see it as breaking it down into the two different types of repair with the physical and the mental portion of prepare.
1: And uh, so that's a very great uh, piece of advice. And one more thing I want to ask you guys. So let's say, uh, would this fall under the PREPARED acronym? Like, let's say, you know, you get on the train or you get on the subway or whatever. And would you like kind of think about this before it happens type of thing? Like you get on and you say, all right, if someone gets into the subway car and starts shooting, would it be best if I'm standing here or would it be best if I'm sitting in that corner? Like, like, is that something that would be a part of that?
2: Always, always. Why do you think guys that have been doing this game for so long, we sit in the back corner of a restaurant with a wall to our back? Why do you think if we can't manage to sit that way, we find someplace that we can have overwatch of of most of the places that we go into? Why do I always notice when I'm driving down the road what cars are behind me or when I'm in a restaurant or a grocery store or a mall of guys with their hands in their pockets, people that just don't look right or and keep an eye on them? You're always physically preparing. And when you physically prepare with those, then you start setting yourself up mentally prepared of, But what if? What if this happens? What would I do right now to either reduce that threat or protect my loved ones that are with me and beside me? Right. And that's a very great,
1: great piece of advice.
0: It's what's crazy is, you know, uh, Travis just mentioned that. and, And it's funny in the transition, which Travis will experience here shortly. It's when you when you integrate into civilian life, like people think, you know, for me and Travis, that's completely normal. Like sitting in the back of a restaurant, doing all this stuff is normal. But uh, for they, they think we're crazy because they're like, "You're always thinking about this." Well, what's funny is Travis mentions the things that we do constantly, but for us, it's subconscious thought. It's something that we do on autopilot. Like when I walk into a restaurant, I don't have to consciously. There's no conscious effort. I'm thinking about what kind of food I'm eating, but I know I'm moving to a certain spot in in the back of the restaurant that's advantageous um when i'm walking on the street and i'm with my girlfriend and i'm looking at people's hands i'm looking at their hands uh um you know looking at their behavioral dynamics at the same time that i'm listening to her um bitch at me so you know all these things are things that that through training you're going to be uh, almost inoculated with in special operations to the point in, in which it becomes part of your life in which you transition into civilian life. Um, you know, you start to see like, Oh, well, maybe this isn't so normal. Now I don't say it's a bad thing. It's never a bad thing to me because we're going to be special operations guys for life, but it's just, it's kind of par for the course. It's kind of part of the, uh, the, the, the entire life experience. Um, you know, next week we'll talk about surviving the acronym, Um, I know next week uh, I come out with the equipment that's kind of part of all this, this, this tie in with these uh, acronyms. Um, My whole, my whole mantra behind my business model with Philcraft is, you know, life is made up of, you know, the equipment that you have, the training that you have and the experience you have. Those are the three elements that basically um, allow you to perform and, and the lack of any of any one of those things specifically, um, can hurt you and so I'll, I kinda, I kind of want to fill those gaps and one of the gaps that I've tried to fill is with my my minimalist evasion kit uh, I, I just came out with an article on task It's kind of like a seven part article People read the first part and they're like, oh well this you know, it's missing a knife It's missing this it's missing that and if I if I if I was a subject matter expert I'd, I'd do this and I would do that and It's fine. I, I love it. I love the feedback and I love the opinions but understand that my kit, the minimalist evasion kit, is the same kit that I used in covert, semi-permissive environments to be able to get myself out of a situation, be it man-made or natural, and survive for a short period of time. Not an extended period of time, a short period of time. Um, so I'll be doing more releases this week with YouTube videos and a little bit of marketing leading up to the release of it during the Ops course this Saturday. But just just stay tuned for it. Uh, I enjoy talking about this survival preparedness stuff and uh uh Travis thanks for thanks for uh um t- uh, putting up with me and, uh, and and uh I wish you the best man in this transition um coming to su- becoming a civilian
2: Yeah absolutely I appreciate it thanks for having me on guys um hopefully we can do this in the future
1: Oh yeah anytime man anytime. Yeah definitely man um, oh, yeah Yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoyed it and um I I think it was uh people are really going to enjoy hearing uh that recount from your perspective of the uh, operation to rescue Marcus Luttrell. And I just want to say I I appreciate you coming on and and sharing that experience here. And uh, so we're going to close it out now. Uh, Travis is on Instagram at LiveHard18D, LiveHard18Delta. You can find Travis there. If you have any questions, you can just send him a direct message. Uh, Mike's website is fieldcraftsurvival.com, Mike's Facebook is LLC, and his Instagram is softsurvivor, that's S-O-F-survivor. My website is globalrecon.net, my Instagram is igrecon, and my Facebook account is fbrecon. So you can reach any of us on any of those websites or social media accounts, but you can also send an email uh, for any questions you had. Regarding anything that was talked about on the podcast at podcast at globalrecon dot net once again that's podcast at globalrecon dot net and you can get a response on there from me either myself or Mike and we respond to every single email we respond to every single message as always uh so you know we're we're back at number one on the government category on iTunes. And uh, you know, I just want to thank the listeners for downloading, subscribing, and commenting and and we encourage you to continue to do that as we are going to continue to try and bring you the best content possible so we 'll see you guys in a couple of days with the next episode and until then, have a good one.